It's the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP. Now, here's Todd. And welcome once again to the program. Uh, those are sounds from the sinking scene from the 1997 movie Titanic. Best that we can at getting to the uh, real thing about the sinking of the Titanic, because that is part of the uh, premise of the topic of the first part of the program today as we talk with uh, Daniel Stone. He is a, an award-winning National Geographic writer and a best-selling author and is out with a new book called Sinkable Obsession, The Deep Sea and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, that, uh, of course, a little bit of the ship going down as well. Your book uh, takes a look at what happened after the Titanic went down. Certainly there's been a lot of talk and movies even made about, uh, you know, what happened while it was sinking, but not right after it sank. Uh, So I guess I'll start right there. What made you decide to do this book and and, and to use that as the, the treatment for what really is a discussion about shipwrecks in general? Sure. Well, the Titanic is one of the great stories of the 20th century. We've we've all heard about it. We've all seen the movie. There's been many movies, many books. But what we focus on less is the impact this one shipwreck of millions of other shipwrecks had on our culture, on our economy, had on the biology of the deep sea uh, for more than a century. Very colorful characters in the book who devoted their lives to being the person to find the Titanic and also to raise it up throughout the 20th century um, and how much of kind of the cultural zeitgeist this one shipwreck occupied for so long and still does. Yeah, fitting. I played just a little bit of the sound effects here, the clip at the end of the Titanic movie. I mean, how many movies, uh, you know, have been made about, uh, you know, shipwrecks? Certainly this was, uh, you know, a good example of, uh, as you mentioned, the zeitgeist of, uh, <laughs> of, of things as well. The, what did you learn in putting this book together? Uh, as you kind of, as you mentioned, this is a, it's, it's an interesting narrative, I, I guess. We'll just put it that way. Well, good, good question. And I followed one kind of linear question the entire process of working on this book, which is why did this one shipwreck of many others, there are thousands and thousands of shipwrecks in the world. This was not a unique shipwreck in almost any way, right? Mm -hmm. Many shipwrecks before had killed hundreds of people. Many had hit icebergs before. Many had crossed the ocean, you know, the North Atlantic in a very perilous way killed, you know, rich and wealthy people. So what was it about the Titanic? And I I kind of found the answer. Um, It's not what we all think it is, that it's this great metaphor or that mostly rich people. It's something much more elemental to the Titanic story, which is about 1,500 people died, but 700 people lived. And most of those people who lived were young women and children uh, who were granted lifeboats, right? And Mm they, they... other, you know, sometimes 60, 70 years after the disaster, telling and retelling the story of that night. And that storytelling is what kept this shipwreck so alive. It, it kept it alive until the 1950s when uh, Walter Lord, uh, the first historian of the Titanic, made this great movie called A Night to Remember. Yep. And that kept it alive for the next few decades until we get to the 90s when James Cameron makes his movie. And keeps it alive again. And it just keeps getting reinvented and reinvented 
because there's so much great storytelling that's been chronicled for about a century. Yep, good point. Now, with that, and let's get into kind of the, the bigger picture, is uh, you you explore, pun intended, shipwrecks in general through this book, too, and, and kind of answer some of those questions. You know, certainly here in the Pacific Northwest, we've had many, many horrific shipwrecks, even, you know, within dozens of miles of where I'm, I'm speaking to you from. Um, how many shipwrecks are there in, on on this planet that we uh, we live and share oceans with? More than you'd think. Yeah. A lot more than you'd think. If you tried to name every shipwreck you could, you'd probably, like me, name maybe a couple dozen at best. Um, or th- a couple thousand, if you consider yeah. you know the whole world. The UNESCO actually considers uh, the world to have three million shipwrecks. There are three million in every wow. lake, every ocean, every body of water on Earth. And that makes sense when you consider that, you know, for most of human history, that's how people and goods and everything got anywhere. So there's a lot of wrecks under the ocean. But another interesting point is that every single boat eventually becomes a wreck, right? Boats have a working life. Usually it's, you know, 20 to 40 years. They either get scrapped and sunk or they kind of run into trouble before that and they end up at the bottom of the sea. So we are adding dozens of shipwrecks every day to our oceans and lakes. Uh, certainly, um, you in your notes for, for this uh, to talk about this too. And this is an interesting fact: is that uh, more people have died on boats than ever probably will in car accidents. And we don't really think of it that way. But when you just illustrate the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of shipwrecks uh, with all those people on board, yeah, and many of them ha- have never been documented and, and probably never will because you know we're talking a thousand, two thousand years right. ago. People would get on ships and they'd sail and they'd never be heard from again. Um, one of the most deadly eras in ship shipping and ship traffic was during the slave trade when, you know, these, these uh, you know, enslaved people from Africa would be sent across the Atlantic or sent up to Europe to, to be slaves. And, you know, as many as one in 12 of those people died at sea. And, you know, we have no record of who they were. And only recently have archaeologists tried to kind of piece together that era but that's just one snapshot of many eras of ocean exploration. You know, ocean faring has gotten a lot safer uh, over the past yeah. you know, century, but also our ships are a lot bigger now. And so the, the propensity for accidents has increased, too. And the amount of stuff that we accidentally dump into the ocean, containers that fall off ships mm-hmm. or full cargo ships themselves, uh, that has dramatically increased. You know, a lot of people, I'm not an ocean explorer. You're writing about it, and certainly you've done a lot of, uh, with, with your National Geographic past as well. But, you know, a lot of people look at ocean explorers, people who look for shipwrecks as being a little bit off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Is that true? I mean, are they yes. driven a bit differently than perhaps the rest of us who think of ourselves as normal? Yes, they are. And you kind of have to be. It's it's part of the resume of being a wreck hunter or a wreck lover. I mean, these are people who spend a ton of time on boats in bad weather, on rocky seas. They are usually uniquely obsessed with a goal and driven to the point of, you know, risking people's lives or dealing with enormous amounts of money and equipment to try to find wreck or lost treasure or gold somewhere in the ocean. Most people are happy, like probably you and me, to kind of read about it on the Internet and find it interesting. But for people who actually make a living from it, and and there are these people who are very, very good at it. uh, Yeah, they're they're a bit of a 
and will often tell you after a long enough conversation that they don't have time for for your your stuff. They don't have time yeah. to, to answer questions. <laughs> I, they got I got to I got to get out there. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> what about the the whole notion of a kind of the finders keepers, uh, you know, maritime law, if you will? Okay. Explain a bit about that because that does drive some of these folks into doing what they're doing. Because if they get it, they can keep it uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's true because of the patchwork of laws of different countries that they can govern around their coastlines, but in, in part, you know, open ocean, yeah. very deep water, you know, there's often dispute over whose jurisdiction governs that. And, and a ship doesn't make that any easier because, you know, most ships today are registered in countries where they're not built. They're sailed to other countries holding people of different nationalities. So there's this jurisdictional kind of intersection that's a mess. And so when someone finds some buried treasure, Usually the person who owned it before is the person who, but if this thing sank three, 400 years ago, there's often a finder's keepers to it yeah. and people get to, to run off with, you know, what could be hundreds of millions of dollars in, in gold or silver or indigo or teak wood or all these kinds of things that used to be really valuable right. more than they are today. Are, is there still, you know, sunken treasure out there that's worth getting? I probably the obvious answer is yes because people are still looking for it. But uh, you know, your thoughts? Has all the gold been found, for example? That oh, might be. Uh, no way, absolutely not. In fact, similar to the California gold rush, most of the gold is still in the hills. Most of the gold is yeah. still underwater. Uh, now, shipwrecks are a field that's kind of prone to hyperbole, so no one agrees on how much is out there. But the number that cited is about 60 billion dollars 60 is still underwater diamonds gold silver things that you know for centuries just just fell to the bottom of the seas and only recently in the past 20 years have we really developed the tech look for it and look for it effectively but some of these things are more than two miles deep and it's very difficult to see anything really below 500 feet deep so there are, you know, still treasures being pulled up from from miles deep in the ocean, and I think will be for the the remainder of our lifetimes and and much longer. Which is another reason why it's so so hard to find shipwrecks. Correct? I mean, uh, no, it's you might know where it is, but when it's so deep, so much current, things can drift. All of that. Oh, all of it, and and consider that when ships go down, usually they have their coordinates or something. But, you know, they're also drifting while they're going down, like yeah. like the Titanic. Titanic was and, miles away from where they thought yeah, it would be, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you don't have really a precise coordinates. And if something goes down in deep water, to look on the seabed is towing a sonar rig behind a boat in enormous transects back and forth, which can take months. And, you know, these ships cost ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a day. So these are not cheap operations, and they're not for the, the faint of... <laughs> either uh part of what you address too in in and this is part of the the fun of this is there are certain i guess geographical uniqueness to certain types of wrecks there are more wrecks in certain places than others you're more apt to find a wreck in certain seas than others talk a little bit about that uh, where, where where should i go looking first if i want to have a better shot at finding a wreck for example sure the the most common place to find wrecks is probably in the english channel and around uh the uk all of those countries okay. and that's just because because England dominated shipping 
for hundreds of years, right? They, they built the boats, they sailed the boats to all their colonies. A lot of them sank right there. But, you know, you could follow world history by looking at kind of the big dominant powers. There's a lot of wrecks off the east coast of the United States because of the, the you know, colonial history right there. Mm-hmm. There's uh, an enormous number of wrecks off the east coast of Asia, China, Japan, Korea, largely because of World War II. Um, you, could, you could see these eras in history and imagine how many wrecks went down. Almost all the wrecks <coughs> on Earth are in the northern hemisphere, Today, we see most wrecks go down in the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. Those are the big container ships that have accidents okay. in those, you know, big rough oceans. Um, but yeah, you know, I looked at a lot of kind of hot spots for wrecks. And I also looked at a place like the Bermuda Triangle that has this mystery behind yeah. it. And ships go down there a lot, but also that's one of the world's most common shipping lanes. I'm going to ask you about that. Do you believe in the Bermuda Triangle, for example? Or is it really just, as you pointed out, kind of a coincidence because it it just happens to be a place where there's just the opportunity because there's so many ships? I did believe in it. I believe in it much less now for that exact reason. (laughs) But I will say there is one factor that makes ships mysteriously go down there which is the appearance of methane vents, methane that bubbles up Mm -hmm. from the seafloor that effectively makes the water less buoyant. So a ship could be sitting on the water, methane comes up, makes the water less buoyant, and the ship can go down suddenly. And that's one theory why that particular part of the planet has Oh. Odd and mysterious nope. reasons. Okay, well, we'll give that. And again, a natural phenomenon, so uh, not sure. uh, not necessarily UFOs or anything like that, perhaps. No. Um, tell us a bit about uh, when it, you, you also, well, as you mentioned, I mean, there's a, a great number of people survived the Titanic. A lot of people survive shipwrecks. Many don't. Uh, where's the worst place to be in a shipwreck if you want to survive? Oh, great question. There is a lot of dispute among shipwreck lovers about every single question, but about this one, it's undisputed. The worst place on Earth to be shipwrecked is um, uh, an island called Point Nemo in the middle of the South Pacific. It's a tiny little island. And the reason it's the worst place is because it's the furthest point on Earth from any major landmass. It's between New Zealand and Chile. It's also extremely cold, extremely rough seas, and it is also the international kind of dumping ground for satellites. When they get mm. too old and they have to fall out of the sky, mm-hmm. they usually fall around Point Nemo. So everyone agrees, do not go to Point Nemo. <laughs> so if all of the natural elements don't get you, a yes. satellite might hit you. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> That's crazy. I, I have to ask you this one. I know it's in your notes, but stealing a shipwreck. I, I'm assuming this is somebody literally hooking up to something and making off with it rather than, you know, just salvaging it on its uh, at its spot. It depends where. It's very difficult to pull or yank a shipwreck right. like you just right. described. Usually how shipwrecks get stolen um, is piece by piece and uh, especially more modern wrecks, Navy destroyers or big kind of military crafts that go down. If they go down in waters around developing countries or places where the price of steel can be really high because people want to use it to build, they'll send divers down, sometimes without a free dive, and they'll remove a ship piece by piece, Mm. rivet by rivet, sheet by sheet in order to salvage it. And this happens around the waters of Indonesia and Malaysia, sometimes frighteningly fast, like an entire submarine could be stolen within a year. Um, (laughs) 
it's astounding. Like the old uh, Johnny Cash song, One Piece at a Time. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it didn't cost a dime. Uh, the, uh, I should have asked you this earlier, but uh, when we were talking about uh, surviving a shipwreck, but you do talk about uh, kind of what the most harrowing wreck survival story is. Why don't, why don't you share that with our listeners before we run out of time? The most, I mean, there are many, many stories. A lot of them, of, right. Yeah, of people who just survive wrecks and then, and then you know, get onto other ships that eventually wreck too. That has happened several times off, off the, the coast of, of uh, West Africa and into Europe. People who get on a ship, uh, get rescued, get on another ship and wreck, and then finally, you know, make it, make it and survive. Uh, there are stories of people who, who get frozen on shipwrecks. Uh, and only, you know, barely survive or people, uh, very sadly, who get onto lifeboats and escape a shipwreck uh, and then, you know, bob for, for weeks and sometimes months before help arrives. Sometimes they survive and, of course, sometimes they don't. Is it, should we be surprised, I guess, at how, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, we can get to anywhere on the, on the earth. We've got the technology. We can, you know, we've got satellites. We can track all this stuff that there are so many fatal shipwrecks still. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, about one uh, major container ship sinks almost every week, um, according to Allianz, the the German insurance company that tracks these things. And that's not counting the many, many, many more smaller boats uh, that go down. And yeah, shipping is still very dangerous. I mean, you could advance a ship and build it better and build it out of better materials and have GPS and navigation equipment. But you can't really account for the weather or the ocean, especially when you get out on weeks and months-long voyages. And there are parts of the ocean, particularly in the southern hemisphere, in the south, and in the North Pacific, Mm -hmm. where the water is just really rough almost year-round. That is another factor that led the Titanic to be so uh, dangerous, to go in that exact shipping route. I mean, it, it sank in April, which is one of the quieter months. But it's also why a lot of people looked for it for decades and couldn't kind of maneuver a boat in that area because the sea is really rough almost uh, the entire year. All right, Daniel Stone, give us the advice. If you're a novice shipwreck hunter, how do you start? If, you, if somebody's intrigued by finding shipwrecks, what, what, what's your advice for someone to get started? First, you got to research. You got to find everything you can about a ship that went down. There are many. There's a lot of gold to be found underwater. Do your research, find old newspapers and old records, find what people were saying at the time, find the accounts of survivors who described what the conditions were like or any physical objects that they remember being in sight of. That's how almost all of the great wreck hunters start. They do months and months and sometimes years of research before they go rent a boat and start you know, doing those transects. Usually it's one little piece of detail, one piece of evidence that gets them on the trail and eventually, but anyone could start renting the boat, getting the crew, having yeah. deep sea engineers. That's part is harder, but everyone could at least start. Well, and pick up the book, uh, Sinkable, and uh, check it out as well. Daniel Stone's been great talking with you. Thanks for coming on and sharing a bit about uh, kind of what you've learned and uh, all this mystique, if you will, of, of shipwrecks. I think it's kind of, uh, it's very intriguing to all of us, whether you're a landlubber or a seafarer. 
I think so too. And as someone who can't even be on a canoe without getting sick, <laughs> I find reading and writing about shipwrecks to be to be fun. You, yeah. you and me, thanks both. for having me. All right, Daniel's still in there. He's uh, out with the new book, Sinkable Obsession: The Deep Sea and the Shipwreck of the Titanic, using that kind of as a lens to talk about shipwrecks in general. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This is the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP. And thanks to Daniel Stone from National Geographic, a best-selling author of a number of books, and his new one, Sinkable, Obsession, the Deep Sea, and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. Using the world's most famous wreck, the Titanic, as a lens to explore the topic of shipwrecks around the world, exactly what the adventure and uh, suspense and all of that is about. I do pick that up. It's available now in all uh, outlets that you uh, get your books, and uh, really is a kind of a fascinating look at some things, whether you like the sea or not. We're going to take another quick break, and uh, we'll be back to talk with a former Port Angeles resident who's been on a journey of his own. In fact, uh, years and years and years of an odyssey, as if you will, and he's now out with a new memoir about those travels and what he has learned about our society and how we could be working better at it. Uh, from what he's observed in other parts of the world. We'll talk with uh, Terry Clayton about his book right after this. This is the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP. spend some time talking with Terry Clayton. Terry actually has some local connections, and he's also out with a really interesting book called Facing the Moment, Lessons from a Global Odyssey, and we're going to get into that uh, here in the next bit as well. But uh, Terry, we thank you for coming on board, and I, and I want to start with uh, you talking about way back when and your connections with Port Angeles. Some people may recognize the name Terry Clayton from way back when. I was... Uh, uh so old that I personally knew Scooter when he was when he was uh, just out of high school. So uh, that's uh, uh, but yes, I was a, I was a good athlete. Uh, my family is athletic. My younger brother, Mike Clayton, uh, are you probably are familiar with? Yep. Uh, my uh, playing was primarily in football and basketball, and I had uh, scholarships offers in both after I graduated. And so um, go ahead. I accepted a basketball scholarship at uh, uh, at Western, excuse me, at uh, University of Washington. And uh, but after one year uh, then I transferred to uh, Western Washington and I played there four years and had a, and had a great time. Uh and uh, I'm getting side. I tend to get sidetracked. So if I'm going, if I'm doing that, then please uh, pull me back. We will <laughs> continue, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the um, the team that I was on uh, was in 1956 and 57. We went to the state tournament, uh, and. Uh, 
then, and that was, and that was a kick. Uh, then after, uh, I graduated, I was offered scholarships, uh, athletic scholarships by four of the PAC eight, which was called at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Washington, Washington state, Oregon state and Stanford. Uh, one of my, one of my regrets in life, uh, was that, uh, uh, I didn't think that I could make it at Stanford academically, uh, but I, I think I'm pretty sure that I that I could have, in hindsight. But that's that's hindsight. Uh, so, in Port Angeles, I was a great town growing up in. I grew up in Cherry Hill, on uh-huh. uh, 10th Street, uh, and uh, uh, I couldn't ask for for a better time. I remember when we moved to Port Angeles, my dad was uh, uh, originally was from Canada, but then spent most of his early time in uh, in Port in Seattle and wanted to get back in the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, he was in the post office, and we happened to transfer there, and uh, uh, and so that's where I grew up. So that's, uh, you know, after all of this, though, you embarked on what then is, is really outlined in this book that uh, you have out now, a, a tremendous odyssey. It really is an odyssey. Uh, you uh, probably are yeah. one of the most traveled people I think I've ever had a chance to talk to. Uh, what made you, uh, you know, decide to embark on just being this uh, literally man of the world? Uh, I've always had uh, an interest in, in wandering. Uh, since I was a kid, and uh, uh, I remember in my after I graduated from high school in '57, uh, I hitchhiked down to Palo Alto where I just wanted to look at Stanford and and uh, uh, and see what I missed. I'd already accepted a scholarship at Western, uh, excuse me, at uh, at the University of Washington, and uh, so. Uh, um, but I just liked having those kind of adventures when I, uh, after I graduated from, from Western, then, uh, uh, I went into the Peace Corps and was training to go to India, uh, in the Punjab. And so I learned, uh, a the Punjabi, which not many people speak, uh, outside of, of people in the Punjab. And um, uh, but I, I didn't go overseas because the Chinese invaded the, the very valley that they were going to send me in. That would be in 1963. Uh, uh, China invaded uh, India on two fronts: one from the, in the east and one from the west. And I was in in the in the west, so I didn't go overseas. And so I ended up back in graduate school at the University of Washington, uh, and I also got my teaching certificate. And, um, um, and then I taught at Mount Sai for three years, but I w- had a hankering that I wanted to go to India. Yeah. And so that was my first trip around the world, was where it was ending up in India. And I had so many adventures, and it was a different world then. That was before there was... Uh, cruise ships or uh, or uh, uh, 747s or you know so there was not that much travelers 
mm-hmm. and uh, 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 and so that one year of traveling from uh, ended up taking me around the world, and uh, and then it was in my blood, <laughs> and I was very fortunate in that. Um, uh, Arthur Schopenhauer is a, a, a philosopher that I like, and uh, he one of the of his uh, comments that he made was that after he was an old man like me was uh, that when you look back on your life, it looks like it was planned, you know, like it like it was an odyssey, and so that's where I got my idea. Mm-hmm. I've known that I wanted to write this. A book, oh, for a long time, because I we are all born with different qualities, and our, we look when we look back on our life, it uh, uh, it seems like it's planned, but it's yeah. not. It's yeah. decisions that we make all the time, and where we end up is just a matter of the the reality that circumstance and design had led us to and uh and that's that's what mine was and mine took me to 150 countries and i'm and i'm still doing that uh, i mean i will as soon as uh as covid has passed yeah. enough so <laughs> that it's safe, safe to that travel i was gonna say uh, the last couple of years uh, probably been a little bit more difficult for you to do what you've been enjoying uh simply because you couldn't do it yes but i but i I've been writing my book, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I know that known that I wanted to write this book since before I retired. I taught for forty years, both in high school and college, uh, mostly in the in the north of Seattle, uh, in the Shoreline District, and uh, uh, and I know that I tell a good story, and I believe in. Since I was actually 13 years old in Port Angeles and Jun- and Roosevelt Junior High School, Roosevelt High School then, uh, that I had insights on how systems work, how humans function, and I knew that I had to choose an occupation that would allow me to get those ideas out to the public. And uh, uh, yet, at the same time, I was extremely dyslexic. Most people that are as dyslexic as I am don't graduate from high school. They didn't even know what it was back in 1952. Uh, and uh, so I, I thought of myself as an idiot savant. I knew that I had developed my memory so that I had prodigious memory. Um, because I couldn't read uh, until I got into Catherine O'Connor's class uh, in Roosevelt Junior High School, and I, by the end of the year, I was I was reading, and then uh, uh, and so I be, I was, then became a good student, and uh, I ended up uh, uh, where I am now, teaching and going to graduate school and teaching at, at uh, university level. 
In your book, so, I mean, thematically, a lot of what you come back to is just about this uh, common humanity that we share. Uh, talk a little bit about that, yeah. because that, that really, I think, plays into all of these things, because you address things like how wars get started, conflict that we're in, but really, ultimately, you know, we, we all are kind of on the same place. <laughs> we just can't seem to get sure, on the same page. The yeah. And yet we're all different. That's what's, what's unique about... Uh, uh, I think it's true of all species, but uh, but for us, because we're the only species that has technology, but and within the the spectrum of human behavior, we all have this almost unlimited amount of traits that we share in common. But it's on a uh, uh, on a one to one hundred uh, spectrum, and uh, so. Um, but once you realize that it's the same traits that we all have, then it's it's easier to predict the likely outcome in the broad sense. But how it goes turns out on uh, you don't know. You just have to be involved. And so I wrote my book in two parts. The first part is a half of the book is my travel experiences, which. It's a long book, but it's, but it's a quick read. Um, the and it tra- it talks about my travels and what I've learned along the way. And part of a, what I've learned uh, is the, uh, the is the quality that you mentioned about how that we as humans, most people want to get just get along, and uh, uh, and they love their kids and they lo- and they. Our, uh, work well in their neighborhood, uh, and the, and their and they have a certain uh, set of beliefs that they've developed that for them is is reality, and uh, uh, and so that's what the book's about. I guess is I use my stories yeah. as uh, a the ability to tie into these ideas where I developed them. Part of them I took on my travels and uh, and meeting a, a lot of people that are really nice people. Many of them are still friends now. When I go to Europe, mostly I, I go to see friends. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I don't know where, how, where else you want me to take this. Yeah, I think perfect. I was just going to ask, I think as you came back, and I'm going to use the word more primitive, I don't mean, mean it that way, but perhaps this has amplified some of your thoughts about how we're all really the same human condition out there when you get away from yeah. this technology that, you know, Americans, we're just too plugged in, I think, in some ways, that we lose sight of things because everything is just go, 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 and perhaps we need to have an adventure like you do where you go to a place where they aren't go, 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 go in the same sense uh, in order to really appreciate this. Yeah, I think with me, because I'm a gregarious individual and I make friends easily, and and particularly the early years I did travel by hitchhiking. My first trip around the world was predominantly by hitchhiking and local transportation and uh, and getting rides, and uh, uh, I know the, the first time I was in Moscow, uh, that was also in that 67, 68 trip around the world, uh, I met uh, 
some Germans uh, that were about my age, and one of them, a little younger actually, and one of them, Heinz Lentz, uh, I ended up traveling with uh, and hitchhiking. Uh, once we got to Berlin, I had thought I had my passport stolen. Uh, he, he translated for me at the at the, uh, Berlin, the main Berlin police station. Uh, but we ended up, I, but I found it. It was actually, it was in my, between my lining of my, of my, uh, jacket. And, uh, because I'd ripped the, underneath my armpits and I put it, instead of the pocket, I put it in, uh, in my sleeve. Uh, both, have you ever had the feeling of both huge embarrassment at the same time? A, a huge relief. Yeah, <laughs> that was an example. <laughs> and, and and so anyway, I had uh, we had traveled around ten days uh, throughout Germany, and since we were hitchhiking, uh, we was we were uh, sometimes a long time between rides, and he taught me German, so uh, which I still speak today. Uh, so it's. Uh, uh, and whom I still, every time I go or over to Europe, I, I see he and his family sure. and his grand, grandkids and stuff. Uh, the, so, uh, what do you hope people will get from your book if they pick this thing up and, and read it through You know, both parts? Obviously, uh, it's kind of, as you mentioned, two books in one. But uh, is there a goal you would love your readers to leave with? Yes. I'd like to a sense of optimism that... Uh, uh, there's a cycle of change and conditions have to get really bad before the majority of people will, will basically out of desperation, look for an alternative uh, for the problems that they have. And so it was Einstein that said that um, you can't solve the problems with the same a mindset that created the problems. So you have to create systems that are large enough uh, in order to uh, uh, to deal with the problem. And that's where we're in now. We're we're entering into a very difficult time in this this uh, next ten to twenty years. Uh, and not to get lost on ain't it awful and the the tragedy of it. But the to be involved in the change that's needed to solve those problems and ultimately end into a uh, democratic world society, where in which the world then is a is a, a democratic federalism, uh, and that is the natural process. Mm-hmm. I've developed a theory of cultural evolution that I bring out in my second. Uh, uh, half of the book, and uh, and that's my my professor or my professor part of me uh, is that it provides you the uh, the student or the, the the readers with uh, skills that you'll need to have in order to create the social forces for positive change. Uh, and at the same time, we're going to have extremely difficult times coming up. 
and uh, but you have to. It's important to have the sense of hope, or you 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 won't be happy. And I can't guarantee that we're going to be successful, but I can guarantee that you won't be successful if you do nothing and you don't get involved, and you're not likely to be happy either. So in these times, which we are just entering this vortex of a uh, of change, is Surround yourself by friends and family, and uh, and and help each other at the same time that you're involved on saving the environment and uh, uh, and uh, uh, creating an equitable society. Uh, so that's, I guess, is, is the lesson that I I want would like my readers to take. Well, the name of the book is Facing the Moment. Uh, it's available now. Uh, check it out. And I, I guess last question for you, Terry, as you look back, uh, did you ever think your your odyssey would be what it was way back in the, in the 50s when you were here in Port Angeles? No. <laughs> I, I had my, by that time, my sense of adventure. Uh, I want, I've been very lucky. I've had people that supported me. Uh, my uh, person I bought a house with in Wallingford um, uh, when I was going to graduate school, and now we have sold, but uh, uh, Ron Chapern is his name. And he kept the house going, and we rented it out when I was gone. Sometimes, you know, I'd be gone for a year at a time. Uh, and I've it's, I knew it was going to be adventurous, but I had no idea what it would be. And basically, the difference between traveling today and traveling back in the uh, and starting, say, in the early 60s is really an incredible change. And this change is happening globally, not just in the United States, uh, though we're certainly a key part on making a positive change because we are the most powerful nation right. in the world and uh and so my message would be read the book enjoy it i was on mount st helens when it exploded <laughs> and i have a whole chapter on that that's that's the, yeah. the cover of the book <laughs> yep <laughs> um, Terry Clayton and the name of his book, Facing the Moment, Lessons from a Global Odyssey. Pick it up. It is a fascinating book about a guy that's got a local connection uh, as well as been uh, quite the globalist as well and some interesting takes. And just uh, to live vicariously through the travels Terry has had over his lifetime is something else as well. We'll take a break and uh, be back with more right after this.